0: I would like to uh, welcome Ajit Pai, who's the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission to the law school. Ajit Pai is a 1997 graduate of the University of Chicago Law School. After law school, he clerked for Judge Martin Feldman on the United States uh, District Court for the Eastern District of Louisiana and worked in the Department of Justice's Antitrust Division on its Telecommunications Task Force as part of the DOJ's honors program. In 2001, he went to Verizon Communications, where he worked as an associate general counsel before returning to government service. First on Capitol Hill in the Senate Judiciary Committee, and then at DOJ in the Office of Legal Policy before returning to the Senate. In 2007, he moved to the FCC Office of the General Counsel, where he, um, where he worked before returning to private practice in 2011 at the law firm of General and Block. In 2012, he was appointed as a commissioner of the Federal Communications Commission. And in 2017, he was nominated and confirmed the commission's chair. He served in that capacity since then. The agency that Chairman Pye heads has a deceptively modest regulatory mandate, regulating interstate and foreign commerce and communications by wire or radio. Of course, in an era in which the entire economy is being revolutionized by communications, there are few regulatory issues that go untouched by the FCC's field of responsibility, from telehealth, to rural access to communications as a way to expand economic opportunity, to the operation of every television and radio station, to prison inmate access to telephones, and national security. As an example, the agenda for the FCC's next meeting in May includes consideration of reallocation of spectrum for the deployment of 5G wireless devices, the auction of toll-free telephone numbers, authorization for a company seeking to launch satellites, and whether a company owned by the Chinese government can provide wireless telecommunication services in the United States. Chairman Pai's tenure as chair of the FCC has been both bold and eventful. Since his appointment as chair in 2017, he's undertaken a broad program, one that reaches into a host of areas, including reshaping how the FCC's Universal Service Fund operates, in which firms are eligible for funding under the program, and changing how cities and states authorize the placement of 5G wireless antennas. And much to the delight and occasional chagrin of people who teach communications law, like myself, He's brought many of what uh, might have been previously considered to be dry issues of regulatory policy to popular attention. He's probably most widely known for presiding over the adoption of the FCC's Restoring Internet Freedom Order, which rescinded the 2015 Protecting and the Promoting the Open Internet, I'm sorry, Protecting and Promoting the Internet Order known more colloquially as the FCC's network neutrality rules, an act that spawned countless internet memes, consuming what I estimate to be 28% of the entire capacity of Reddit. His rendition of the Harlem Shake is perhaps the most famous dance by a sitting federal official since President Carter danced a square dance on the South Lawn in 1977. And indeed, no federal official, living or dead, I think, is more closely identified with meme culture, as a propagator of means, a subject of memes, and potentially a regulator of means than, than Ajit Pai. In his own way, Chairman Pai has done more than practically anyone in the federal government to promote not only awareness about internet regulation, but traffic on the internet itself about internet regulation. His talk today, Promoting Digital Innovation and Opportunity Through Market Forces, is of a piece with the ideas underlying that bold regulatory agenda at the FCC, that markets, rather than regulators, are more likely to provide the innovation that is at the heart of America's communications explosion. Whether one agrees or disagrees with that policy, it is hard to argue with its clarity or consistency with which Chairman Pai has held it in his work at the FCC. I imagine we'll see some of that clarity on display today. Please welcome Chairman Ajit Pai of the Federal Communications
1: Commission. Uh, Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Nakbar, for the uh, introduction. Uh, One of the things that uh, Tom left out is that he is also a classmate of mine uh, from the University of Chicago. And I'm so impressed with him and all of the others in our class who have gone into academia, some of whom uh, teach here at the law school. Uh, For example, George Geis, who is also a professor uh, here. Uh, uh, Welcome to Professor Geis. As well as Ashley Deeks, who was uh, a year near us. I don't know if you've taken her classes, but all of the Chicago law graduates who are here at the university have just been doing fantastic work. And so I really want to salute them for uh, devoting their talent to these various fields from antitrust uh, to corporate law to international law as well. I also want to thank Tom for the uh, rendition of my biography. He's much more charitable than uh, some members of my own family. I have to say every now and then, uh, this is my 10th job out of law school. I graduated in 1997. So new job on average every 2.2 years, something like that. And for quite some time, uh, my mother in particular was very worried that I just couldn't hold down a job for more than two years. They were doctors at the county hospital in Kansas where I grew up for 42 years running. And so every now and then when I would call up and tell her, look, there's a new job I'm going to be taking, she would just wonder. Is this some new step You on know, the way to unemployment? Is he going to be moving back to his old bedroom? He should have gone to medical school. I kept telling him back But, uh, um, but I knew I'd finally arrived uh, when I told her back on uh, October 31st, Halloween of 2011, where I got the word from uh, the White House that President Obama is going to be signing your nomination papers, you're going to be uh, nominated to serve as an FCC commissioner. And then, of course, I called my parents. I was very excited. Uh, I thought they would be as well. And so my mom's first three questions out of the gate, and I swear this is true does this job pay? Is it a full-time job, and if it doesn't work out, can you go back to the law firm where you're working?" Which is, for her, to just still didn't quite understand what an FCC commissioner did, but I knew that she appreciated it At last. About three years ago, I was in Los Angeles, or heading to Los Angeles for some meetings, and I told her, Uh, I actually managed to pull some strings, and I'm going to see one of my favorite uh, judges in the entire country, Judge Judy. Uh, My mom and Judge uh, Judy and I have had a relationship for now some 20 years. My mom and I used to watch her religiously. And so this was on a Friday when I called my mom and told her that she dropped all of her patients on Monday, flew to LA on Sunday, and we were in the judges' chambers on Monday morning. And she never said anything at the time, but I heard from a few friends of hers later on, Ajit, she's so proud of you. You got her in to see Judge Judy. I mean, none of the rest of it, like not, not getting nominated by the president, none of that matter, but getting her in to see Judge Judy, that's what, you know, finally got the credential from my mom that I had long been waiting for. Um, This has been a terrific uh, job for a whole variety of reasons. And as Tom has pointed out, it's a very challenging one, regardless of uh, who the occupant is. Uh, But to me, one of the reasons is that I truly believe in the power of technology to improve people's lives. I grew up in a small town about three hours south of Kansas City, two hours southeast of Wichita, two hours from Tulsa, a tiny town called Parsons nestled in the southeast corner of the state of Kansas near the Oklahoma Missouri borders. And so I was keenly aware as a child growing up in the 1970s and 1980s that my opportunities to understand the outside. outside world were relatively limited. Back in those days, it was essentially three broadcast channels, a telephone that was wired into your wall. And if you were lucky, you might get a 10-foot wide satellite dish that you could plant in your backyard to get a few channels, assuming the channels weren't scrambled. And fast forward to today, the technologies are just incredible. It feels like every single week I'm learning about some new technology or service or application that would have been unthinkable to those of us who lived uh, back in those times and even 10 years ago the technologies are changing quite a bit. Uh, And that's part of the reason why our top priority of the FCC is closing what I call the digital divide, the gap between those Americans who have access to the internet and next generation technologies and those who don't. I've seen it all too often in this job Some of the benefits, but also some of the challenges that come with the digital divide. In terms of the positive, for example, over the last two years, I've been to 45 states and the territories of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And so I've been to places like Scottsville, Kentucky, which is a lower income town in a lower income county, Allen in Kentucky. In all of Allen, there's not a single pediatrician. But now, thanks to a broadband connection between the Allen County Schools and Vanderbilt University's Children's Hospital across the border in Tennessee, all the child has to do if he or she is sick in the Allen County Schools is walk to the school nurse's office, and you immediately get seen by a top-notch pediatrician with your parents able to view the visitation on a mobile app that they've developed. I've also been to places. Uh, like King Hill, Idaho, where I visited a potato farmer who is now 100 times more productive than his, farmer, his father was before him, in part because of 4G LTE, and satellite, and drones, and other Wi-Fi based apps that he's able to use to really dramatically improve the productivity of his farms. i visited entrepreneurs in small towns in Mississippi, in New Hampshire, and in California, where they're able to use these technologies in order to make their lives better, to make their families stronger, to make their communities more prosperous. But on the other side of the aisle, I've also seen parts of the country that are on the wrong side of that digital divide. I've been to places where there simply is no internet access. Places like Cabin Springs, West Virginia, where I heard a small business owner talk about a resort that he has that is steadily losing business. Because one of the things that people want to do when they visit West Virginia after they see the beautiful mountains and they plug in in the rooms, they want to watch Netflix. And they can't do it because there's no internet access that's available there. I've been to places like the Jemez Pueblo in rural New Mexico, where I've talked to members of tribes who say, our kids can't do their homework at home, we can't gain access to the outside world for our own education, because there simply isn't any access at all. Most tragically, I was on the Rosebud Sioux Reservation about a year and a half ago, where I heard the tragic story of a woman who was found dead in her home, her cell phone in her hand. She dialed 911 38 times, 38 times, But the call never went through, because there simply wasn't wireless access. And so part of the reason why I'm motivated to get up every single morning and come to do the work that we do at the FCC is to close that gap, to make sure that every American, regardless of who he or she is, regardless of where he or she happens to live, is able to gain access to these technologies. Well, how do we do that? Uh, We have two basic tools in the toolbox, which I'd be happy to amplify on if you have any questions about them. But number one is regulatory modernization. We need to make sure that our rules match the times in which we live in order to maximize the business case for any private sector company to to, to build these networks. Building these broadband networks is hard. It's very capital intensive. You have to hire the crews. You have to raise the capital. You have to take the risks in order to build these networks. And to the extent that a business case is very difficult, it's going to make it even more challenging for these private sector businesses. Companies to execute on those plans. The second thing is which uh, Professor Nakbar. Um hinted at is the Universal Service Fund, which is essentially a $10 billion capital expense and operating expense fund run by the FCC. And we've been devoting our lot of energy to reforming uh, how the Universal Service Fund operates in order to target this scarce funding at parts of the country that are on the wrong side of the digital divide, making sure that we stretch those dollars as far as possible to connect people with what I call digital opportunity. And to this extent, we've had to have been in office, what, two two years and change, something like that so far. We've already been getting some results. We've seen more companies and uh, small businesses and homes connected in 2018, for example, with fiber than in any year since the records have been kept. We saw speeds increase from December of 2017 to 2018 by 40% almost. And we're seeing more and more people on the right side of the digital divide, which is a very positive thing. Uh, That said, we still have a lot of work to do. In particular, when it comes to wireless, uh, this so-called race to 5G is one of the things that has been consuming a lot of attention. As you might have heard, 5G being uh, the fifth generation of wireless connectivity. And here, too, we've been very, very active in getting more spectrum into the commercial marketplace, updating our regulations to promote the wireless infrastructure of the future, and also promoting more fiber deployment. Because of the technical characteristics of these networks, we're going to need a lot more fiber in the ground than we have today. So a lot of work still to do, but a lot that we've done so far. But um, I don't have any particular uh, remarks beyond that. I mean, I'd be happy to go into the nuances of Part 32, the Code of Federal Regulations, if you'd like. But I suspect that your questions are probably going to be of more interest to you at, uh, than anything else. So uh, with that, I'd be happy to turn it over. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to raise your hand and uh, ask away. If you don't mind saying uh, who you are and where you're from, that would, be, that would be great. Or I can keep lecturing for another couple hours. It's up to you. Hey. Hey, my name is Carter. I'm from So maybe yeah. you could talk a little bit more
0: Specifically, could you describe what it is and also the characteristics of that
1: A terrific question, which was uh, for those of you who didn't hear about 5G. Uh, so 5G, as I said, is a fifth generation of wireless connectivity, but is not simply a question of adding another G to what we've got. If you remember, the 2G networks that went from 3G, 3G, to 4G, those were tr- pretty much incremental improvements in terms of the ability of wireless networks to carry some of this wireless traffic. 5G is going to be transformational. We've already seen some results in the lab, but we're now seeing it in the field. Speeds will be 100 times faster than 4G networks, if not even faster than that. Uh, the latency. That these 5G networks will have, which is the gap between the time when you ping the network, if you want to click on a link, for example, and the time the network responds, that latency will be reduced by 100 times, uh, 10, uh, one tenth the, the speed or one hundredth uh, of the speed that or latency that you get with traditional 4G networks. In terms of capacity as well, because we're using a wide variety of spectrum, the capacity is going to be tremendous. And so we'll allow things that we can't even conceive virtual reality, other high bandwidth applications. Uh, so, from a technical perspective, at least, 5G is going to be be very different. It also has a lot of challenges. And I hesitate. I should say I'm not an engineer, but what I do know so given some of the spectrum that we're thinking about, these networks will be operate very, very differently. In particular, we're using a lot higher frequencies than we traditionally have used for wireless networks. So if you're on a 4G network right now, for example, you might be your carrier might be using 700 megahertz or maybe 1.5 megahertz, gigahertz or something like that. Uh, 5G will involve things up to 24, 28, even 47 gigahertz. And so the nature of those bands is very different. The the waves don't travel as far, and that's part of the reason why the fiber deployment that I about is going to be even more critical, because once those uh, transmissions go over the airwaves and they travel a shorter distance, you'll need a lot more infrastructure in the ground to carry it back into the core of the networks. In terms of the applications, uh, we already see a glimpse of some of the future. Uh, the professor mentioned telemedicine, which is one of the things I've been focused a lot on, especially in coming from some of these rural and low-income urban areas, where you might not get high-quality healthcare care in your neighborhood. 5G, we think, could be one way of solving the problem of extending the reach of medical expertise to make people's lives healthier. I'll give you one simple application for telemedicine. For example, imagine that you were coming out of an operation uh, and you had to be checked up on every, say, day or two or something like that. If you lived in a rural area and you had traveled, say, two hours to go to the hospital to have that surgery, it would be a real pain for you or a loved one to drive you all the way back to see that physician. But what if you had wireless sensors that you could simply apply to your skin that would remotely ping the network with very small amounts of data and let them know how your vital signs are doing? And if they were starting to go south, then medical practitioners could intervene a little quicker. That's just one type of application that we were already seeing. In fact, not far from here, there's a place called Augusta Health in Stanton, Virginia where I saw that they've been doing this for some of their patients post-op. And they've been able to reduce the incidence of sepsis by 38% year over year, simply by monitoring their patients regardless of where they happen to live. So that's one application of 5G to health. There are others too, uh, because 5G involves not just wireless technology, but a lot of the other technologies that are being developed right now, in particular artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, A couple of months ago, I was at MIT, and I visited with a researcher who mentioned that she had been a breast cancer patient for a while, and she's now a survivor. things that occurred to her was, well, what if uh, they, had, they had detected her cancer a little sooner? Is there some way that technology could be developed to do that? And so she's developed some algorithms that scan thousands of mammograms uh, for some of these breast cancer patients. And because they're able to synthesize all those and use 5G wireless technologies to to draw analytics out of it as quickly as possible, they are now able to detect one year quicker, on average, uh, when a woman is likely to get breast cancer. And if you think about how many millions of patients that means, how much time that saves, how many lives are at stake, that's a game-changing application. And that's just healthcare. I mean, we could think of others. I was in a farm two months weeks ago in Yellow County, California, uh, where they are using some of these wireless technologies to monitor not just the yield that you get, you know, the amount of uh, food you get out of the ground, but also the soil moisture and the pH. And do we need fertilizer in this particular square foot? And how much water do we, can we save by not applying water every single day? They operate really highly sophisticated farms nowadays in some of these uh, wireless uh, farms. And so I think that 5G is going to be a game changer there, too. Uh, there are all kinds of things we can't even conceive of now. I mean, I'm looking into the future, is it inconceivable to say that if you're an NFL fan, for example, that you'd be able to create a virtual reality module which allow you to virtually be on the field even if you're sitting at home uh, you're watching the game? And you're, th- th- that's the kind of thing that uh, NFL, all the professional sports leagues and movies, studios, and all are thinking about is how can we use virtual reality, which is a super high bandwidth application that requires a lot of bandwidth and very low latency in order to make the experience more appealing to consumers. So the future is very bright. We just don't know, know how we're going to get there uh, as quickly as possible, which is where the FCC comes in. So last fall, I introduced what I call the 5G fast plan, which is a plan to facilitate America's superiority in 5G technologies. And that plan, which you can see on the internet at FCC.gov slash 5G, if you're interested, has three basic parts. Uh, getting more spectrum in the commercial marketplace. Uh, we're in the middle of a 24 gigahertz auction right now. Later this year, we're going to be auctioning off the 37, 39, and 47 gigahertz bands. We also have some Upcoming auctions of 2.5, 3.5, and 3.7 a spectrum as well. In addition to that, that's just on the license side. In terms of Wi Fi, We're looking to free up about 1,200 megahertz in the six gigahertz band, which will turbocharge Wi-Fi. I mean, if you look at what some of the Wi-Fi advocates have been saying, this would be the most significant move, in their opinion, that the FCC has ever made since Wi-Fi was introduced back in the 80s and 90s. And so we're just looking to push a huge amount of spectrum in the commercial marketplace, also promoting more wireless infrastructure. Uh, Because of the nature of these uh, millimeter wave bands that I was talking about, 24 gigahertz and above, we'll need a lot, instead of 200-foot cell towers intermittently dotting the landscape, you'll see a lot more small cells, uh, small antennas, relatively inconspicuous, operating at lower power, much more densely packed in. We need regulations that promote that kind of small cell infrastructure, and that's part of what we've been doing the last couple of years. And the third piece is promoting more fiber deployment. And there, too, uh, we've gotten a lot of work done, uh, getting easier and quicker access to utility poles, for example, or the conduit that lies under the ground. Uh, Altogether, these moves are making a mark. Uh, Cisco and ABI Research and some others have suggested that the United States is in the lead when it comes to the development of these. 5G technologies, uh, but there are other countries that uh, want to seize the lead, in particular China, which I've been spending a lot of time on recently, and uh, there's no question that I think other countries see the success that America had in 4G, they want to claim it uh, with respect to 5G, and so we're moving as quickly as we can to seize those opportunities so that entrepreneurship and innovation and ultimately consumer benefits are found on our shores as opposed to in other countries.
0: Hi. Hi, I'm Sammy Gabriel. I'm from Dallas, Texas. So I was wondering what the U.S. tools might be based on.
1: Yeah, where to start? Uh, So uh, first and foremost, I think, is the fact that uh, by tradition and law in this country, we have multiple layers of regulatory review. So let me give you an example. Uh, There's currently a 5G trial going on in Dallas, as you might know. To deploy a single small cell in the city of Dallas, you might need federal permission. You might need state permission. You might need local permission from the city of Dallas. And as in addition to that, you have to clear through what is called the Tribal Consultation Notification System, or TCNS, which allows any one of the 572 federally recognized Indian tribes, Native Hawaiian organizations, or Alaska Native organizations uh, to raise concerns, to object, essentially, to that deployment. And one of the arguments we've heard is, look, it might take us 10 to 20 minutes to deploy a single small cell. It can routinely take one to two years to get the requisite regulatory approval to deploy this infrastructure. And part of the reason why I've argued for streamlining of this process to present a consistent level of regulation across the country is that ultimately, capital is very fickle. And so to the extent that companies think, "Okay, the United States has all these four different layers of regulatory review. China, by comparison, has a single national policy. We want to win 5G. We're going to clear away all these regulatory obstacles over time we will see a lot of the infrastructure investment flowing to countries like that. And we're already seeing China, in particular, has already deployed millions of small cells at scale because they do have a consistent level of regulation. Now, for obviously good reasons, we have served a lot of the democratic niceties that China doesn't. Nonetheless, though, I have to think that there's some way to preserve that public interest in uh, some governmental review while streamlining the process to make it a little bit quicker. I often use the example down the road from you in Houston for the uh, Super Bowl that was held at NRG Stadium a couple of years ago. Uh, One of the wireless carriers looked to deploy six. small cells on already existing poles that were in the parking lot of NRG Stadium to handle of that wireless traffic uh, that was going to be generated by the fans at the Super Bowl. It ultimately cost them $173,000 to deploy those six small cells and a huge amount, I I can't remember exactly how long it was, something like eight months or nine months of regulatory review. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of small cells that need to be deployed across the country. We will not get there to the extent that those regulatory barriers are in place. Uh, The other regulatory barrier is one you might not expect, which is the fact that a lot of the spectrum that is currently usable or potentially usable for 5G is held by the federal government. Some 60% or 70% of spectrum is either held by the federal government entirely, or the federal government has what's called co-primary status. Essentially, they have a right to use it above everybody else. And uh, one of the battles that we've been fighting recently uh, has been trying to encourage other federal agencies to relinquish some of that spectrum, or at least to share it with the commercial sector. Under the law, we don't have the ability to force them to do it. I can't go to the FAA or the Department of Defense or these other agencies and say, you shall give up this 100 megahertz of spectrum. I have to try to persuade them. That is a huge barrier. Because a lot of these agents, I mean, I often say in Washington, in our office, one of the most powerful forces in government is inertia that rules that are on the books uh, or on the books, because they've always been on the books. And to try to persuade them to change the rules, to relinquish some of the spectrum, to take secondary status is very hard for them to do, unless we create some incentive for them to do it. And so there's a lot of horse trading that goes on behind the scenes. I've got to call up a lot of people, and you know, hey, if you do us a solid on 5 gigahertz, then maybe we can work something out on 71 gigahertz, that kind of thing. Or just trying to to escalate it. We held an event at the White House recently, where we talked about the fact that we need to have more 5G spectrum that's Made available, including spectrum that's held by the federal agencies, Uh, there's just no way to get there. Without these federal agencies cooperating, so it's a constant struggle uh, to you know, to do that. We just don't have the ability to do it on our own, which is sort of unusual. In most countries in the world, there's a single regulator that has authority over a spectrum that's held for both commercial and government purposes. Uh, the United States, for historical reasons, has split it up. Uh, the Commerce Department technically has jurisdiction over a spectrum held by the federal government. We have jurisdiction over private spectrum, and so there's a never-ending battle essentially between those two. Uh, so I'd say those are the two major regulatory barriers that we. Face right now. Hey. Hi. My name is Joanette Laden from York. I was wondering if you could talk about the national security risks that might be posed by uh, implementing 5G infrastructure and CCP file with an N5 or Yeah, this is a great question and a question I've been spending a ton of time on. Um, One of the great things about these 5G networks is that it promises incredible conductivity. One of the risks is that it promises incredible connectivity. And uh, one of the things that we've been working on is try to, to, to try to reify the importance of security in these ICT networks. And especially as I talk to my counterparts from, from abroad, it's clear that other countries are thinking about it too, not just the promise of 5G, but potentially the peril to the extent that these networks aren't secure. Uh, so we've been pushing uh, the FCC uh, security in a variety of different ways. We don't have direct authority uh, when it comes to cybersecurity. Uh, primarily, it's the Department of Homeland Security, where there is a cybersecurity and infrastructure security uh, directorate that is in charge of it. But nonetheless, we've been trying to push this envelope as far as we can. For example, in the development of the technical standards, one of the things that we've emphasized to some of the private standard-setting bodies, like IEEE and 3GPP and the like, is to incorporate thinking about security at the front end. With 4G, security has been thought about primarily as an afterthought. You know, back then, we were just thinking about how do we get all these people connected onto four G networks. We'll worry about security later. Here, we've encouraged them to incorporate some of those necessary security protocols at the get go, which is one of the things that they are doing. So we're in, we're confident these networks will be inherently more secure than the four G networks that preceded them. In addition to that, we've been working with a lot of the federal partners. Uh, gosh, I, uh, the whole alphabet soup of agencies from the National Security Agency to the CIA, the entire intelligence community. I work with a lot. I get briefings from them regularly on some of the th- threats they are seeing, on ways that we can cooperate. Um and ways we can make sure that these networks are much more secure. Uh, With respect to our own bailiwick, I proposed last year, and we're in the process of finalizing right now, a proposal to ban the use of federal funding from that universal service fund that I mentioned earlier from being spent by US-based telephone companies on equipment or services that have been determined by the United States government to present a national security threat. This is a huge issue for us in part, because if you think about it, a lot of this funding is going to uh, rural carriers that are in the uh, Mountain West uh, or other sensitive parts of our country, where you might imagine there might be military facilities and the like. Uh, To the extent that they are incorporating gear from Chinese companies in particular, uh, that that gear can be managed from abroad. Essentially, these are software. Operated networks, and so it raises some concern if you have a rural telephone company in Wyoming or Colorado uh, That is simply outsourced the management of its network uh, to, to an entity that is entirely beyond our shores So that's one of the things that we were developing as well uh, The other piece of it which is we've been spending a ton of time on is working with our foreign allies I've personally spent uh, Gosh many weeks on the road uh, working with the governments of Portugal and Japan and Brazil and India uh, you name it I'm going to the Czech Republic soon and to try to talk to our allies about how they're seeing this issue, to try to emphasize to them some of the risks that we see. And some of the risks I can't talk about in the setting, of course, but in a classified setting, we sort of roll out uh, the papers. This is what we're seeing. This is why we think it's important. We would urge you to follow the United States lead here, not because we have a parochial interest. I mean, there are no US-based equipment suppliers anymore for wireless equipment. Traditionally, pretty much just Nokia, Ericsson, Samsung, and a few others. Uh, But we do want to emphasize that security has to be thought of at the at the front end. Once you install all of this gear in your networks, it's essentially too late. It's going to be prohibitively expensive to rip it out. So we have to make a decision uh, that's the right one at the beginning.
0: Hi. Hi. Um, how we have, you how okay. Um, can you talk a little bit about um,
1: how you understand net neutrality? Sure. Uh so I've, uh, you've probably seen this has been a pretty uh, hot issue at the commission. Uh, you can Google uh, what I've said about it in the past assuming the internet still works, of course, but uh, which I think it does as far as I know. Um uh, but uh so w- w- I think Well, so I'll give you the the standard answer I give, which is that uh, I believe in a free and open internet. I think the free and open internet is what we've had from the inception of the commercial internet in the mid-1990s. And when uh, the commercial internet started, one of my predecessors, uh, President Clinton's second FCC chair, had a pretty fundamental decision to make. Are we going to apply the traditional regulations we've applied to networks, the common carrier regulations, to this new thing called the internet? And he made the decision, which was radical at the time, no. We're going to treat it like uh, lightly regulated information service as opposed to a more heavily regulated telecommunications service. And he was severely criticized for it at the time. But I think ultimately his decision was the right one, because what we saw in the subsequent two decades was $1.5 trillion in network infrastructure investment. We saw small startups like Facebook and Amazon and Netflix and Google go from tiny enterprises to global giants that dwarf the size of any internet service provider itself. We've seen consumers gain the benefit of all those internet applications and services that, as I was mentioning earlier, were inconceivable. Uh, just 20 years ago. And so to me, at least, the wisdom of the light touch approach was demonstrated by that 20 years of experience we had from 1996 until 2015. And the question is, what problem was the 2015 order, the net neutrality regulations, what, what problem was it designed to solve? And to the extent that it was designed to solve those isolated cases of blocking or throttling or whatnot that were identified in the 2015 order, then it seems to me the better approach is to have a targeted uh, system of regulations where we single out the bad apples in the bunch, as opposed to preemptively presuming that every single one of the 4,462 internet service providers in the United States, from Comcast and AT&T, all the way down to Pal- Paladin Wireless in Royston, Georgia, are preemptively monopolists who are going to discriminate against Google and Netflix and the like. And so I think that market-based approach is the right one. That's not to say that we're not going to see issues come up in the future, which is part of the reason why in the 2017 order, we instituted a very strict transparency rule. We said every internet service provider, regardless of size, has to disclose its network management practices, its business practices, its pricing, et cetera, on a publicly available website or on the FCC's website. And just recently, I told Congress that our staff has gone through every one of those disclosures and to make sure that all these companies are living up to that obligation. In addition to that, we've also re-empowered the Federal Trade Commission to take action in this space. under the federal FTC Act, the Federal Trade Commission does not have jurisdiction over common carriers. And so when the 2015 FCC said, OK, we are going to treat every inter- service provider as a common carrier, effectively it stripped the FTC of jurisdiction, not only over net neutrality issues, but on things like privacy and the like and uh, data security. We've now re-empowered the FTC and we have a memorandum of understanding with the FTC so that if we see anything, we will share that information with them and vice versa. Ultimately, I think this issue is best solved by Congress. I mean, the legislation here is not hard. It could be on a single page. We don't want to see blocking of content that's lawful. We don't want to see throttling of content. We don't see any competitive paid prioritization. We don't want to. We want to have transparency. I mean, those are. That's a very simple set of principles that I think everyone would agree with. It is never going to be enacted because this, this has become such a political issue. And I wish that sometimes that uh, people, some of these politicians who are grandstanding on either side of the issue would just sit down and put it on the page, and we could get it into the United States Code so we could finally move to what I think is consumers' primary concern, which is how do we get better, faster, cheaper internet access to every single American? I mean, that is, I think, where we need to have a sense of national mission. And that's, I think, part of the reason why I've told our elected officials Net neutrality is important. I get that. But the bigger issue is closing the digital divide, making sure that America leads in terms of innovation and investment. We're at a real risk of creating a two-track society where millions of Americans are going to be left behind. We need your help in order to solve that problem. But thus far, we haven't seen that same sense of a purpose from our elected officials. OK. Um, so your last
0: point sort of leads into my question. I'm from the Yeah. Um, so states are around there's a pretty really big urban world divide in terms of broadband. Um, and a lot of the same arguments we heard from the Verizon in the world, capital, intensive, et etc., are the exact same arguments we heard like 80 years ago for why a world in Tennessee couldn't have that first week. Yeah. Um, So My question is, why should we be relying on Verizon to provide such a critical public good? Um, and if we should be, how can we actually get them to type of capital investments they need to that might not actually be possible? That in
1: order to people uh, It's a great question. And uh, this is uh, one of the reasons why I draw on that very analogy when I talk about the importance of broadband. I don't know if you've read Robert Caro's books on LBJ, but in uh, The Path to Power, Volume 1, there's a fantastic chapter on the electrification effort of the Hill Country of Texas back in the 30s. And I always say we need to have the same sense of purpose when it comes to broadband in the 21st century that we had for electricity in the 20th century. Now, obviously, we have some more significant constraints in some ways when it comes to broadband. For one thing, this is a geographically huge country. I mean, we don't have the luxury of being like a South Korea or a Singapore with a very small geographic landmass and a densely populated area where the business case for deployment is going to be as self-evident. There are many places, and you know, Nashville is one, but there are many small towns outside of Nashville that I've been to where I've seen that you're just never going to find, in some cases, a broadband provider that's willing to provide access to lay fiber in the ground. And so there we've tried to think creatively about it. How do we encourage some of the smaller companies, for example, to enter this space? I talked about some of the spectrum we're freeing up for 5G. Some of that spectrum can also be used by fixed wireless companies to provide access in rural areas. I just met two weeks ago with a startup in the Bay Area that's looking to use 60 and 70 gigahertz spectrum to provide fixed wireless access to rural areas in particular, especially in some of these parts of the country where you don't see a lot of mountains, a lot of trees, and the like. This could be a really significant use case because there's not a lot of. it's just going to be prohibitively expensive to lay a fiber line in some parts of Tennessee. Uh, same thing when it comes to satellite. Over the last two years, our administration is the first to authorize the next generation non-geostationary satellite orbit uh, companies, SpaceX and OneWeb being the most prominent among them. But there have been others as well to try to beam internet access back down to the Earth at a speed and at a price point that would be comparable to any terrestrial providers. And they're starting to do those launches later this year. In addition to that I talked about some of the re- regulatory reforms where, that we are uh, trying to make it we're trying to make it easier and cheaper for some of these competitive companies to gain an access in the marketplace uh, poll attachment reform is one of the biggest ones I mean people's eyes glaze over when you hear the phrase pole attachment and at least my wife does do when I tell her about some of the things that I'm, I'm excited about but last year we adopted a policy called one touch make ready which actually started in part in Nashville which was a policy of allowing a competitive fiber provider to do all of the necessary work to make move the incumbent cable companies and the incumbent electric companies' equipment up the pole so they could attach fiber themselves. And one of the issues that we were hearing about from these competitive companies was, well, look, I have to get approval from the electric utility to move their equipment. The cable company has an incentive not to deal with me because I'm a competitor to theirs. And so I have to wait for a long time and pay a lot of money in legal fees and whatnot just to do this necessary work. So we changed that with One Touch Make Ready, which I think is going to have a huge impact, especially in places like Nashville. so we're just pulling out all the stops to make sure that we do what we can to encourage private companies to do the job. But I recognize fully that in many parts of the country, No company, regardless of scale, even the Verizon's of the world, are not going to have an incentive uh, to build those networks. And that's part of the reason why the USF is so important. I mean, This is $10 billion every single year that we have necessary uh, to allocate to some of those providers to encourage them uh, to build these broadband networks. And that's one of the reasons why we've introduced a lot of reforms there, uh, to encourage some of these companies to get into this space. So for example, when I came into office, the FCC was routinely spending $300 million each and every year to subsidize a fourth, a fifth, or even a sixth competitor to provide wireless service in a part of the country that already had three or more competitors. We said, this is insane. We have many parts of the country. not On the road down here, I noticed many parts of the state don't even have wireless access. Why are we spending money subsidizing a fifth, sixth competitor in one part of Virginia when another part doesn't have access at all? So we're redirecting that funding to parts of the country that don't have access to support companies that are willing and able uh, to do the job with some of those federal funds. So I recognize that it's a frustrating frustrating situation in many parts of the country. But ultimately, the model that we have in the United States is that the private sector takes the lead. Unfortunately, we don't have unlimited funding at the federal level to support the construction of a broadband network by the federal government. We've got to encourage the private sector to do everything it can. And that's what we're trying to do. Hi. Um, hi, Ari um, from New York. Um, on that issue, so some people have been suggesting um,
0: municipalized And um, the FCC has been somewhat reluctant to allow allow certain municipalities to proceed with that. I was wondering if you could talk about why you think municipal and high cities are a bad idea.
1: Yeah, from a policy perspective, I don't. I mean, I've always been consistent that my concerns here are solely a legal one. And obviously, this is a legal crowd, so I can get into the nuances of that decision. But to the extent that uh, the voters of a state have determined through their elected officials uh, to bar or permit uh, municipal broadband projects, that's a decision for them to make. It's not up to the FCC to second guess it. And so, If a state decides, New York state decides to authorize particular municipalities to think about broadband projects run by a city, that's up to them. It's not up to us to second guess. And so I've looked at some of the very innovative uh, solutions. For example, as I am in Idaho about a year and a half ago, and Ammon is a, a, one of those cities where it adjoins a city that has good broadband access, but they can never persuade a fiber provider to come to Ammon itself. So they essentially invested in a broadband network themselves. And they've created essentially an open access system where any company can come in and uh, as a retailer and sell their wholesale access directly to consumers. And it's worked for them. And so to the extent that a state allows it, I don't have a problem with that. Hi. So um, I'm Wilson from Accler, Carolina. Oh, yeah. um, and uh, some people have said, you know, we have a, uh, an epidemic of uh, robocalls. I don't think girlfriend name. sitting here, allegedly from Honolulu, Hawaii. Hey, congratulations. You might have won a new vacation. Sure. <laughs> yeah. See you in Waikiki. I think I got that same one, so, except mine was in Chinese. So, yeah. <laughs> so the Spoofing, um, yeah. I guess, I wonder what your thoughts are on why we're having this epidemic right now and what this issue drives me crazy. I mean, not just as a regulator, but just as a consumer, I get them all the time. In fact, we were just on the way down, and I got one, and I like, you know, your health plan is being switched. Press five, and so I always try to string them out, just to you know, just to play with them. And so I pressed five, and unfortunately, they hung up before I could talk to them. But whenever I talk to these operators, I always want to tell them, like, just so you know, you're talking to the enforcer of the regulations that prevent exactly what you're doing, and they immediately hang up. And it's just a, it's a fantastic conversation. I, I absolutely love it, but um. Uh, But uh, anyway, so this is the number one consumer complaint that we get. And it's been the number one complaint for many years. Unfortunately, the technology has progressed to the point that it's very easy to unleash these robocalls. I mean, it's essentially just internet protocol-based calling. So wherever you are in the world, you can now send a phone call to an American consumer and mask the phone number that you're using. So that creates a huge problem for us. It's no longer the case as it was back in the analog days where if I was calling you, there was only one route for that phone call to go, from me to you. And so there was sort of built-in authentication of the networks. Now, with internet calling, everything is, is up in the air. And so we've been tackling this in a number of different ways. From the regulatory side, we've empowered phone companies to block calls that are coming from phone numbers that are obviously spoofed. If it comes from an area code that doesn't exist, for example, in the United States, then they're empowered to block them. In addition to that, last fall, I demanded that the phone companies adopt what's called call authentication this year. And if they don't do it, I said the FCC would do it for them. Essentially, call authentication involves a digital fingerprint uh, for every single phone call so that uh, if the phone call doesn't have that fingerprint, if, essentially, if we don't verify that the call is coming from an authenticated phone number, then a phone carrier would not carry that call on its network. And just in the last week, well, we've seen a number of carriers, T-Mobile and Comcast, I think it was, just announced last week that they would, not, they, they would start adopting this uh, call authentication framework on traffic that is exchanged between their networks so that you won't get any calls from Comcast customers on a T-Mobile network that haven't been authenticated. We hope to see that. Implemented by the end of this year, and that, that we think will cut down on a significant amount of the problem. Uh, but from this, so a lot of other regulatory steps we're taking, but also on the enforcement side, we've been going after a lot of these robocallers. Uh, so one of the things that just drives me crazy is that a lot of these callers just there's no cost to them to this activity. It's essentially a profit-making activity, and so we've uh, imposed the largest fines in the FCC's history, two hundred million dollars and counting on robocallers from Florida to Texas who've been violating our rules. Now, part of the problem there is we don't have the actual collection authority that resides in the Department of Justice. So we've told the Department of Justice, look, we need you to institute these collection actions immediately in order to collect money. Because otherwise, you know, we can impose fines left and right. But uh, you know, to borrow from Seinfeld, you know, what's important is not to take the reservations, to hold the reservation. You know. What's important is not just to impose the fines, to collect the fine. And so ultimately, that's what we want the Justice Department to do. Uh, in addition to that, I've also talked to my counterparts in certain countries where we think a lot of the robocalls are coming from. And so in particular, uh, we have talked to the chairman of the Indian FCC, the Telecom Regulatory Authority of India, because we've seen there are a lot of call centers that are set up for the express purpose of robocalling American consumers. And you know, we, have, we see maps where we can see where these calls are coming from. So we now have an MOU with the government of India, where you know if we see that, we will share that information with them. They can share it with law enforcement. And we can crack down on some of these call centers. Uh, it is somewhat of a whack-a-mole effort, unfortunately, because you know, the te- technology can always be applied in a different location under a different company name or whatever. But nonetheless, we're hopeful that by the end of this year, we'll be able to see meaningful results so that you can have uh, Thanksgiving dinner or you know, watch the college bowl games in December or watch the Chiefs' upcoming Super Bowl victory in January without being bombarded with some of these robocalls. It just drives people crazy. Oh, in addition to that, I should have mentioned as well, uh, so we also monitor robocalls that are targeting particular populations, uh, in particular elderly Uh, People and recent immigrants, we've noticed, are uh, really vulnerable to these. Uh, We saw a case recently where a lot of Chinese language robocalls were being sent to New York uh, City, as a matter of fact. And one group of consumers forked over something like $3 million because these calls were reporting to be uh, from the Chinese consulate saying, If there's some issue with a family member or with you, if you don't send this money immediately, something bad is going to happen. And a lot of people just feel compelled to send over money, even if they don't think there's anything wrong. And so we've been putting out a lot of advisories uh, to consumer groups, uh, to city governments, and others to say, look, just be aware that the scam is out there. Don't succumb to it. If you get a call, don't do what I do. Don't answer the phone. Uh, Just uh, let it go to voicemail. So this is a huge issue and uh, one that we hope to tackle soon. I It's sort of related to the there are some standards work. It's more of an FTC issue, because uh, they have jurisdiction over Section 5 of the FTC Act, FTC Act over unfair and deceptive trade practices. So if we see something like that happening, our our team shares that information immediately with the FTC. And we enable them to go after some of those bad guys. Um, that reminds me of another related issue, which is that uh, reassigned phone numbers are a big problem. So if you had a phone number and uh, you, you gave that phone number to your local pharmacy, to your kid's school, or whatever, and, and then you change numbers, some new person, like say I'm assigned that number, I start getting calls from your pharmacy or from your kid's school, and I don't want them. Uh, That's a huge hassle for us as consumers. It's also a hassle for those legitimate businesses that are looking to call people who've given their phone numbers in good faith. So we actually set up as well, I should have mentioned this earlier, a reassigned number database so that any company, any school, any nonprofit, whatever, can consult the database to make sure that the person who was assigned that number is in fact still assigned that number. So you don't get calls that were meant for somebody else, which is another species of robocall. Hi, Hi. I'm Jackie. I'm from New Jersey. Uh, You just mentioned the FTC, and I was curious along the lines of robocalls. I mean, how much
0: of the issue do you think is really an FCC issue versus an FTC? Because a lot of them are trying to falsely falsify trade practices.
1: I think it's both, uh, to be honest. The FTC, as you know, uh, has authority over the do not call list which gives them a uh, stake in this issue. I mean, unfortunately, the reality is that robocallers don't care about the do not call list. If you're located abroad, you have <laughs> pretty you know, a good chance that uh, the FTC is not going to send its enforcement arm over to find you and to track you down. Uh, nonetheless, they do have authority over unfair and deceptive trade practices. And so that's why we've shared a lot of information with them. And when they see some of these scams, they share them with us uh, to try, try to make sure that we're on the same page on this issue. And uh, there's no question that we need as many cops on the beat as we can. There are also state AGs who are highlighting this issue as well. And they have authority in some cases. Uh, the state of New Jersey, actually, has been very forward-thinking on this front. And uh, you know, hey, go Jersey, right? You know, how often do you hear that? So, uh, but yeah, sorry. But uh, I can say that my sister lives near Jersey. It's Not, not hating on Jersey gratuitously. But, uh, but no, it's, it's a huge issue that state AGs as well have been working with us on. And sometimes we'll have concurrent investigations going on into some of these robocall scams.
0: Hi. Uh, so I'm Ethan from Northern California. Uh, we recently had a general counsel of the NSA come and speak to us. And, uh, an interesting point you made was about uh, the importance of public-private partnerships moving forward. And think that ports over of, to uh, a lot you spoke about uh, We've got technology moving at such a rapid pace uh, and at a faster pace than the new language regulatory modernization. So it makes sense that a government agency like yours would want to partner with that. I'm curious, what sort of partnerships have you seen under your leadership? Uh, what's the promise of those partnerships, and what are some
1: of the practical drawbacks? So I'll start with the last part of that, the practical drawbacks, because uh, in one way, we're almost culturally unequipped for this sort of uh, sort of uh, international competition, I guess, is the best way to put it. Because on one hand, you have uh, the American model, which is much more decentralized, much more free market. Traditionally, we, if we have private sector public-private partnerships, uh, it, it typically involves the government giving a small amount of funding and then overseeing the private sector, which does the lion's share of the work. On the other hand, you have what more what I'll call colloquially the Chinese model, which is direct investment in companies. They pick out, in different sectors, the companies they want to be their national champions. They directly subsidize them. In addition to that, the Chinese government in particular pours billions of dollars itself every year into basic research and development on everything from artificial intelligence to quantum computing to blockchain, you name it. I mean, there is no such fund on, in the US comparable to that. And so one of the things we've been hearing, especially as we talk about 5G to some of our counterparts, is, well, look, Ajit, it's all great that you tell us not to use Chinese gear. Uh, but on one hand, you're telling us to use a mix of Ericsson, Nokia, and Samsung, all different companies. Uh, you know, we have to invest on our own in artificial intelligence. We have to invest, think on our own about blockchain. And all of that equipment and all those uh, all those research and development dollars, it's all much more expensive. Whereas China gives me a one-stop shop. They'll say, hey, we will give you all the network infrastructure, all the software, all the R&D you need at 50% less cost. How do we compete with that? That's not easy it's when you think about it. And so it here involves a huge influx of federal dollars, which we don't have. Or it involves public-private partnerships, and for, so we're trying to pursue that as much as we can. I spend a lot of time talking to companies in D.C. and Silicon Valley and other places to try to encourage them to you know, look into some of these next-generation uh, technologies, uh, AI and machine learning, and blockchain in particular, which I think are going to be very transformative. Quantum computing as well—that's probably a longer-term effort. But one of the things i told them is. Look, it's all important. All these great wireless applications we see on these phones; those are important. You know, we all want to see uh, hyperconnected games of Angry Birds and whatnot. But at the end of the day, what would really matter for national competitiveness, national security, is you focusing a lot of attention on all of these next-generation technologies that are going to ride over these five G networks. Uh, that is one of the things that we're starting to get traction on. I mean, they're looking more at. Uh, well, a lot of different things. I'll just simply leave it at that. But uh, it's hard, because we don't have the ability to tell them, here's a big check, as the Chinese government would, please look into this. It's more, you know, hey, look, if you we can do events where we highlight some of the things you're doing, bring public attention to your companies, uh, help encourage you that way. It's uh, much more of a nudge effort, as uh, my former professor, Cass Sunstein, would say, as opposed to a push effort, as you would see from other governments. It is a huge problem. If you have any creative solutions, I think it's your generation that's going to have to help solve it. Because, as I said at this point, the U.S. government doesn't really have a model for competing in that sort of environment. Oh, hi, my name is from South Florida. Um, I was wondering, you know, what would
0: you say are some of the if you can implement like one or two federal policies to effectively like
1: What do you think about that you focus and modeling? Oh, man. See, this is a question I've never asked, because when I'm testifying on Capitol Hill, they don't want to hear about what my legislative ideas are. It's like How have you screwed up in the last year in this way or that? So this is a nice change of pace. Thank you for the question. Um, that's a good question. I think the number, well, two things I will point out. So number one. And this is going to sound uh, sort of repetitive, what I said before, but the number one thing that Congress could do, I think, to incentivize infrastructure investment and innovation in the United States is to pass a one-sentence law. And the law would simply say something to the effect of any technology or service or application that is based on the internet protocol, IP, can only be uh, regulated by the federal government. That would have a huge impact across the board on network companies, on technology companies, and others. And we see this problem arising in all these different sectors. I mean, we've talked about the telecom side, where it's hard to deploy wireless small cells at scale. It affects other companies as well. I mean, one of the big battles in Washington right now, for example, is with respect to privacy, because you have some states, like California, that are passing their state-specific privacy laws. And Google and Facebook and others have come to Washington saying, no, we need federal preemption, because it doesn't make any sense to have a patchwork of privacy laws where a consumer's privacy expectation depends on uh, the whim of a particular state that he or she happens to be in. On the other hand, you have a lot of these states saying, no, unless and until the federal government preempts us, we have a legitimate right to say what the rules are going to be uh, for these networks when it comes to privacy. So simply saying that the federal government has the right to regulate anything that is inherently an interstate activity. Uh, I I think that would be a a huge, huge game changer. We spend a lot of time litigating and debating uh, what the appropriate regulatory framework is given the patchwork system we've got. And I don't think it's a stretch to say, uh, and I don't think it's particularly political to say that anything that is inherently an interstate activity should only be recognized, regulated by the federal government. I mean, for the it's been a long time since I took con law, but for the dormant commerce clause aficionados out there, I mean, I think that's something that would inherently appeal to them is that it doesn't make any sense. If you send me an email or tweet me right now in this very room, even though we're, we can see each other, the chances are that that communication traverses a, a state boundary, and so It doesn't make any sense to me for the internet to be regulated by officials on a state level or even a local level. I think that would be one thing that would incentivize, that would clear out a lot of the regulatory underbrush and promote a lot more infrastructure investment. The other thing I would highlight is a proposal I made in September of 2016. Uh, which is uh, what I called gigabit opportunity zones. Uh, one of the things I recognized that was, especially in uh, rural areas and low-income urban areas, no matter how much federal funding was available, we still couldn't solve the problem in some parts of the country. And so the idea I proposed was you would have essentially these gigabit opportunity zones, where you would designate a, a, a geographic area. It could be as big as a rural county or as small as a block in a lower-income urban area. As long as the median income in that area was 75% of the, or less of the national median, then Congress could extend tax incentives to broadband providers who built networks, high-quality networks, in those areas. It was a way to solve the problem that I saw, which was once called digital redlining, where you would see some of our, Cleveland, you see some of this, where uh, they, you would see broadband providers competing to provide fiber access in certain neighborhoods. But if they didn't sense a return on the investment was going to be in a different neighborhood, they would say, yep, forget it, we're not even going to deploy there. And so you'd have these, essentially, zones without any internet access at all. And that's one of the things I was hoping that this uh, initiative would solve. There's now bipartisan legislation in the Senate uh, from Senators Capito, a Republican from West Virginia, and Senators Coons uh, f- from Delaware on this very issue. And I would hope that Congress would take that up as uh, one way of solving the digital divide I can't do it on my own. We don't have jurisdiction over tax policy, but they could, and that would be one of the things I would hope that they would see would be for the benefit of everybody. I mean, to me, at least, internet access is not a Republican issue. It's not a Democratic issue. It's just an American issue, and this could be a win for everybody. Oh, wow. Our time flies and you're having fun. Okay. Oh, hi. hi. I'm Esther. from am Paul. So I have a more theoretical rather than policy question. Okay. I was wondering if you've um, come into contact with kind of, you know, internet wary Alex Jones types um worry, you know, about like, you know, the internet like the internet turning people's brains so into mush or, you know, like people are talking about virtual reality NFL of young people spending all their time, you know, watching, you know, the chiefs play. What do you kind of think about that? so it- if the reason I'm grabbing my phone, if I could just show you my junk mail folder, I, ra- I have a so- whole cadre of people who email me all the time just telling me that I'm in cahoots with the NSA, with all these people to send microwave transmissions into their brain, and I'm going to be responsible for the uptick in cancer rates and all that kind of stuff. And so there are a lot of conspiracy theorists out there. and. Uh, You know, it's it's one of the things you have to deal with is try to educate them on how 5G networks would actually be better from that perspective, because they operate at lower power. And that's one of the things that a lot of people don't recognize is one of the things that consumes a lot of power on your phone is it's searching to find uh, the nearest cell tower. And that cell tower might be a mile away. So that means that these things operate at much higher power. The cell towers, too, they have to blast out a signal from very far away in order to reach your phone. With 5G networks, the small cell could be in this room, and you wouldn't even notice it. And so it doesn't have to work as hard to. the phone and vice versa and so one of the things i've been trying to educate folks like who are worried about that is to say 5G is actually your friend if that's really what you're concerned about you won't have to worry about the phone getting hot and you know blowing a hole in your pocket or your brain or whatever it's just much much better from that perspective but uh, there's a lot of skepticism about technology in general uh, even beyond the conspiracy stuff i mean i think a lot of people now are starting to second guess at least in my experience anyway a lot of the entire internet experience. And now you're seeing second guessing about social media, generally speaking. And uh, I, too, have seen that as well. Uh, you know, I don't really use Facebook at all anymore. It's just, uh, just seeing how it kind of divided a lot of my friends instead of bringing them together. And uh, same thing with Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter. If uh, Those of you who know my account know I'm pretty eclectic. Uh, but there's no question you get a lot of crazy stuff there, too. And uh, Every now and then, I'm just always tempted to tweet. I sort of troll tweet some of my haters. Like, But uh, out like, oh, I t- took my daughter to ballet class. they like, F you. She supports net neutrality also, you asshole. Like, all right, yeah, right. I yeah, think so she's more worried about you know, when she's going to watch StoryBots on Netflix and supposed net neutrality. But anyway, so I'll uh, just say that I think uh, a lot of people are wondering, is technology really a force for good in our society or not? And every day now, there's a new story that makes us question that. I don't know if you saw the stories about the Sri Lankan bombings uh, on Easter Sunday, one of the things the government did immediately, I'm not saying I endorse this, but it's one of the things they did, uh, was to shut down social media. Because they thought that, okay, all these rumors about what happened or who's responsible are going to be spreading on WhatsApp and Facebook and the like. And it could really start a lot of social turmoil uh, that's one of the things you, you would never have thought governments would do that five, ten years ago, democratically elected governments at least. That's one of the things they're now broaching. Even here in the United States, I'm sure you see in Washington every day, there are calls from Republicans and Democrats to say, hey, you need to bring these tech companies to heel. They need to do X, Y, and Z that they're not doing now. And, I think it's all born of this fact that you know, technology is a great thing. It makes us more productive and live longer and all the rest. But it also has the potential to divide us socially. And so it was certainly people of two minds. But from my perspective, least I'm just happy that I finally got my dad. To start using the internet, and so originally email was a killer app for him, and so originally he would put the entire message in the subject heading, and so you have to, my sister and I would have to parse through this entire subject heading to figure out what he's trying to say. But now we've got him on the right side, and so he's you know structuring things perfectly. If I ever get him on Twitter, though, that would be that would be the end of it, I think. So sorry to filibuster your uh, question, but that was. Uh, yeah, meandering way to end our presentation, no, so. I mean,
0: with, it's, it's actually reassuring to hear that the chairman of the FCC does his own tech support for his family, so. Oh, you have no idea. Oh, my God. So. Uh, Ajit, thank you so much for taking so much yeah. time to come to talk to us. Oh, oh Thank you, guys. It was awesome. Thank you very
1: much.